Hi guys, here we are today with Randy Khan, Chief Technology Officer at Marketa. Randy, good to have you with us. How are you? I'm wonderful, Lawrence. Thanks for having me on today. Well, look, great to meet you. Um, Marketa, a company taking the world by storm. Um, you know, for, for our viewers, for people watching, what is Marketa? Um, what is it that you guys are really trying to achieve right now? No, that, that's a great question, Lawrence. So, so Marketa is a modern card issuer and processor. And so we, when a, a company is trying to bring a, a, a unique and interesting experience that involves debit cards or credit cards, really any kind of payment that wants to leverage the payment network, the rails, if you will, uh, out there and, and uh, easily flow money, Marketa has a modern, advanced API-first platform that makes it easy for developers and innovators anywhere in the world to do that. And 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 in terms of like the vision and values, like what what is the the goal that you're really trying to achieve, like for the world, if there is one? Definitely is one, Lawrence. So you know, we, I I think of our vision as being the the global provider for money cards, or sorry, modern money movement, really making it easy for innovators and developers to make payments, to move money around. You know, this is something that's been traditionally very hard to do. You know, there's lots of regulations, there's lots of kind of very onerous complexity, how you interact with a bank, how you interact with a card network, how you do ACH. Like th these are frankly legacy complex technologies. And if you're building a modern consumer first product or even a modern B2B product, it can be very hard to integrate and interact with all these legacy platforms that really are, are largely built around mainframes and you know, very classic bank technologies. So Marketa, brings a modern platform and a modern set of APIs that makes it much easier to interact with all of those systems and allow your applications and allow your innovations and allow your customers now to interact with the rest of the world in terms of payment and money. It really sort of allows you to bridge your cell phone, a web application, kind of whatever piece of software or system you're building to that kind of bricks and mortar real world experience, which is payments. And in terms of payments, I mean, how are you essentially helping your um, your your clients and your customers to innovate and for them to um, add on to what you're doing and really change the world themselves? Well, you know, uh, our founder, Jason Gardner, really is a payments geek. And, and he, he just loves thinking about how modernizing this space can allow other innovators and other entrepreneurs to change how they work in their industries. You know, to really bring fundamentally new experiences to consumers, fundamentally new experiences to businesses that reduce friction, that reduce time, that, that make the experience just more delightful and, and, and more effective and more efficient, frankly. And so by bridging that to a developer or to a product person or to an organization or an entrepreneur that didn't necessarily come from a payments background, but once their products to interact with the rest of the world, I'll give you an example of crypto. The crypto world is sort of a, a world unto itself. It's this beautiful mathematical foundation for moving money around, for moving value around. But it's kind of walled off, right? If I want to go buy a cup of coffee, I'm drinking a, 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 a blue bottle right now. If I want to go buy a cup of coffee, it's kind of an arduous process to buy that with cryptocurrency. Well, some of our customers are in that crypto space. They use the Marketa platform to sort of bridge to the rest of the world, to bridge to that more fiat-based, card rail-based payment infrastructure. 
So if I had a uh, one of my customers' cards, for instance, powered and processed by Marketa, we, they could actually do a conversion from Bitcoin to fiat at the point of sale real time. And now effectively, my cryptocurrency, which traditionally was sort of this world unto itself, is now directly connected to the rest of the world through the card networks, allowing me to enjoy this cup of coffee. And is that largely where the ideas have come from for Marketa? It's kind of like revolutionized this part of the world? That is a great question. So so the the I wasn't here for it, unfortunately. I've only been with Marketa for about a year. Uh, but the story actually starts in about 2008, 2009. And our founder, Jason, was having dinner with a friend of his. And they were, they were uh, I think they were eating some sushi, actually. And th this is sort of the, the peak period of Groupon coupons. And you know, there were a lot of other companies that did as well. But there were all these consumer coupons. And he had like a pocket full of these things. He's like, you know, if you want to go do this, that's the other. And they realized, wouldn't it be great if all this was on one card? Instead of carrying this whole wad of either paper coupons or, or PDF files or whatever, <coughs> wouldn't it be great if this was on a card? So that sort of launched this whole experience of understanding how you interact with the card network and kind of figuring out the, the wonderful abstraction, if you will, almost from the, the card holder, from, from the, the kind of person with the assets, with, with, with uh, you know, whoever you want, who, the person who wants to make the payment to the rest of the world, all the merchants. It's this wonderful kind of place where you, you could do very different things on both ends of that, but because of the way the card network works, it brings all those together. So the idea was to put all these on a card. So the company actually started with the idea of a very consumer product, right? This kind of consumer, as an individual, me, Randy, I want to put all these coupons that I have onto a card, <coughs> pardon me, go around and use them wherever I see fit. Uh, it was a bit later, I, I think it was maybe six years later or so, that we kind of pivoted to this more B2B business, or, or really, in most cases, a B2B to C business, because most of our card holders are actually consumers. But our clients, our, our clients in Marketa, are other companies and other businesses, and we're really solidly in that space that I've been describing now of powering innovation through other entrepreneurs and other companies and other innovators who want to bring that sort of reach, the payments and that sort of interconnectedness that the card networks around the world provide. So, I mean, in, in terms of that, look, it's a huge undertaking. You yourself, like, you, um, you're, you're, you're very experienced in your, in your space. Um, you mentioned you've only been here now a year. You've obviously been um, thrust into the for forefront of it all. Um, what what's your background and what were you doing before? Great question, Lawrence. Thank you. Um, so I, I've been in the software space for, for a pretty long time now. I, I uh, actually, funnily enough, the, the first piece of commercial software I ever wrote was an accounts receivable package. Uh, and, and I put together an accounts receivable package in, I think it was DB3? I mean, this was a long time ago. I don't even remember exactly what it was, but I think it was, was DBase 3. Um, ran on MS-DOS. You know, I wrote this thing as a kid, and I sold it to a bunch of stores in the little town I grew up. So you know, it started with the, uh, started with the, the newspaper, and I didn't know how I originally got the lead, but like they were having all kinds of account receivable problems. They did it all on paper before that, right? So I, I sold them the computer, and I wrote this software and did accounts receivable. How, sorry, how old were you? I, I was a kid. I, I, I was, you know, I don't know, 12, 13, 14, something like that. How, uh, so why I decided to figure out accounting to sure. charge, I don't know. Yeah. No, but, but how, how, 
how had you learnt it? Sorry, I'm I apologize, oh, yeah. I completely interrupted you, but I've got I've I've got to dig into this. Like, how did you get to a point at like 12, 13 years old? You know, you talk about MS DOS, like that's a that's that's a while ago. Um like, <laughs> it's a while ago. Well, how 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 did you first get into computing then? Uh, well, I got into computers through hardware, right? So, so I liked building radios. I, I had a ham radio license. Uh, I, I, I had an Altair 8080. And so like the soldering iron, what, I, I grew up on a farm, first off. So I was in the middle of nowhere, kind of on a farmstead, and you know, spent the bulk of my time kind of just going around and figuring things out or hanging out in the library. And you know, so, so hardware and vacuum tubes, actually, back then, I, did a lot, I built a lot of random stuff with vacuum tubes. Um, got some interesting stories about uh, how they explode or burn you or all kinds of fun things. But hardware and electronics and, and you know, literally building circuits and figuring out how it worked, like that, that was a lot of fun and something I just enjoyed wasting my time with. Uh, then after a while, I got tired of, of, you know, all the noxious fumes you get from a soldering iron and all the burnt fingertips and, you know, sitting there with, with a uh, ohmmeter trying to figure out why my board didn't work the way I expected it to. I started playing with software and I realized that it, it, you sort of had this infinite space where, where you could do almost, in, yeah, if, if you could imagine it, you could do it. And you, know, you you'd, in, in these days, you know, you pretty quickly run up to the limits of, of what you could do in the hardware. Uh, you know, my, my, my fanciest computer early on was a Texas Instruments, uh, I think it was a 994A. And so I spent a lot of time, first I learned basic on that, you know, it's a, First, like like anyone, like you play some video games and you're like, okay, this is boring. What do I do next? And and then I figured out there there was a basic interpreter built in, and so I started. I taught myself basic and wrote a bunch of random stuff, and then I, I realized pretty quickly that that was pretty limiting on, on such a small machine. And so I went to uh, assembly language and that pushed that <coughs> pushed that box really as hard as I could. That so you know software was kind of a natural outlet, if you will, or evolution of my interest in math, my interest in music, my interest in, in electronics. Uh, and you know, that, that idea that idea that you can create anything that you can imagine. And yes, there, there's practical realities that get in the way. And you know, as I've gotten uh, you know, advanced through my career, the business constraints and, and kind of making sure that you can actually keep the business running and keep your employees happy, like all of those things start to become reality as well. Uh, but that kind of technical beauty, if you will, or mathematical beauty of have an idea, you can go make it happen. I mean, that really, Lawrence, is, is what brought me into software and excited me about that in the first place. Are you from the Bay Area originally, or like, or like, or that's that part of the world, rather? You said I, I, United States. Oh, sorry, uh, but you broke I, up for a second there. Apologies. So oh, sorry. I, I, I was saying I'm from the West Coast of the United States, but, okay. but I grew up in Washington State. Uh, about uh, 60 miles north of Seattle. So I grew up in, in outside of a town called Stanwood, Washington. Uh, and then I moved to Seattle um, well, a, a, a bit later. And I, I spent most of my adult life in Seattle. I worked at Microsoft for a long time. Uh, and then I actually moved down here to the Bay Area. I live here in San Francisco now. And I moved here about eight years ago. Because you, you very much got that um, philosophy about, you know, if you want to, if you want to make a change in the world, you can build it, right? That, 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 so much that fun. Comes from, well, that, that, that comes from that that part of the world. So exactly, exactly. I mean, and, and in terms of that, so 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 you start in computers very young. Like, where did you get your first like big break? Uh, well, I, honestly, you know, I, I'd probably say um, it was Microsoft, right? So so I I, uh, 
I, I thought I was going in, into classical music as my profession. I mean, I love computers, I love software, but I also spent a lot of time playing the viola, and I, I thought like that that was my path. <clears throat> and I randomly, uh, I, I was actually meeting my mom for lunch, and I had a book on uh, x86 assembly language. Um, I think this this was the era of the 8286, and uh, it was a really powerful computer way back when. Uh, and a, and a, a, a gentleman walked by who was a friend of my mom's and said, oh, you know, are you interested in computers? And we started talking a little bit. Turns out he's a, a general manager at Microsoft at the time. And he said, well, why don't you come work for us for the summer? You know, why, why don't you interview? Why, why don't you come have an internship? So I was the intern that, that didn't leave for nearly 25 years. So, you know, that, that, it, that it, it, was, it was like a kid in a candy shop. I, I had so much fun. And, you know, it, it was interesting. The company was obviously much smaller back then. And... I went, from the outside in, I was expecting like this treasure trove of elegant library software and, and you know, the, the, this sort of mental model of, of what beautiful, perfect, academic, professional software might be. Well, of course, Microsoft was a business and like every business and every place I've ever worked or every company I've ever spoken to, uh, it's, it's a balancing act, right? And, and you're finding ways to grow your business you're finding ways to satisfy your customers, and you're kind of constantly battling the complexities, the scale, the trade-offs that go into building software. So, you know, it was nothing like the Crystal Palace that I fantasized about from the outside once I joined. But nevertheless, there were brilliant people. I've learned so much. You know, I, I, I worked far too many hours for far too many years, but I had a blast, and it, it was just such a fantastic education. I mean, and, and sorry, what, what, what year was that, if you don't mind me asking? I don't remember the first the year I actually started. I think I went full-time in 90 or 91. So, and then I was there until... Amazing. Like, that yeah, amazing. I mean, there, there was... I, it, well, I, I like to tell people Microsoft, you know, people are like, oh, what was Microsoft like? I'm like, which one? You know, they, they, there were very different Microsoft. You know, I, I left in 2014, I think it was, um, and I came down here to San Francisco and, and, and worked for Parker Harris and, and Mark Benioff at Salesforce. Um, but Microsoft went through so many changes and generations. And, you know, I, my memory is it was less than 1,000 people when I joined. And, you know, I think it was 140,000 or something when I left the company. <laughs> And I, I guess you've probably seen the same sort of like exponential growth, probably at Salesforce. And now you're witnessing it at Marketa. Um, uh, would you say that actually the challenges that companies face as they grow, I mean, have they changed? How are they changing? The, the, you know, the challenges for a company like Marketa, how do they compare to a company like Salesforce, for instance, or a company like Microsoft? You know, Lawrence, there's a great parallel, and honestly, that, that, that's part of why I'm here, right? It, it, it's that scaling and that growth story. You know, I, I love building teams. I love building software. I love building businesses and sort of balancing all of those needs as you're growing and scaling. <coughs> Excuse me. That, that, that's something that, that, that I find energizing and, and intellectually fascinating. And the challenges are very similar in, in, in all three companies, but you know, I think as society has progressed and, and as, as you know, with, with sort of each iteration of this, the world's changed around us. And, and so the complexity actually continues to go up. 
You know, the, the level of competition for talent now is, is greater than it's ever been before. You know, and it, it, was, it was tighter and harder at Salesforce than it was for me in the early days at Microsoft. You know, e each of these areas has gotten bigger and more complex. You know, the reach of technology, the reach of the internet, the reach of, I mean, frankly, card payments. All of these things have, have gone up orders of magnitude and scale since I started my career. And so the, the sort of the technical accuracy, if you will, that you have to use in order to meet sort of a, a quality bar, an expectation of, of a, a standard, if you will, of quality of service in any product, in any domain, and especially in something like Marketa, where you're handling someone's money, you're moving payments around, it's tremendous. And so to do that at scale and to grow at a fantastic pace while your team is growing, while you're building the environment, while you're building the business, yeah, it, it, it's just a fascinating bit of work around prioritization, around focus, <clears throat> around aligning your organization and you know, ensuring that folks understand the vision and the mission and you know, how the work they do each and every day ties into that and how it makes our company more successful and how it makes our customers more successful. Well, I mean, in, in terms of something like rail, you know, we're, we're still a very young company um, in many aspects. Um, you know, we have like, oh, well, oh, sorry, I should say I, I have huge demands like for, from, from the team, um, especially the tech guys, you know, and, and it's natural, I think, for every company to put pressure on their tech teams to ensure that actually they're not just maximizing um, value, but they're, they're utilizing them, right? So doing everything they can to, to really get, to, to doing everything they can to get the best out of the teams. I mean, how we, how do you personally approach that with, with your tech teams? I, I'm a tyrant, I, I, I'm a pain, right? Um, but I mean, obviously at scale, it's hard to, maintain that quality quality control maintain those standards but also and probably more importantly in some aspects is that culture and i'm not talking about the whole overview of like my, the, the the culture of microsoft or the culture of salesforce or the culture of marketa right it's much more about how do you maintain the quality of control of that micro culture within the tech team and, and Lawrence, I, I think I'd have to ask you, kind of like I referred to, you know, which Microsoft, which Randy, you know, my, my, my approach has evolved and I think improved over the years. You know, I, I, if, if you would ask me this question in, let's say, you know, 98, I was probably a tyrant. You know, there was a lot of, of sort of just dogged determination and, and, and extreme sort of uh, high pressure focus. Um, I had a daughter, Chloe, uh, in 2008, and you know, kind of through that experience of being a father, of, of kind of balancing my own you know, personal needs at home with, with the, the needs of my organization at Microsoft at the time, you know, I found better ways to still get excellent results, still meet our customers' needs, still make them and the company successful, but not be quite so hard-edged. And you know, I, I the, the the you know my my uh, my fundamental philosophy sort of starts with don't be a dick. I come with everything important. Be clear. Be upfront. Be blunt. But be a good person. Right? Bring people along. Create some camaraderie. Create you know it, it, create more interest and draw 
than sort of pressure and push. Now, the flip side of this is you'd be amazed how much people can do. And generally, people are amazed at how much they can do. So finding the way to kindly and supportively push people way harder than they think they can go, not in terms of hours, but in terms of sort of elegance, priority, focus, choices, you know, the, the technical path. You know, they, I find over and over again, when it goes well, that I can push an individual or a team to the point where, where you know, four months later, six months later, they look back and literally go, I had no idea we could do that. And I think that's your responsibility, right? Genuinely, I think that the biggest challenge, and this isn't about the size of the company, and it's not even really about the company culture. I think more than anything, people don't realise their full potential. And having someone there that actually is able to see through it and go, actually, I know what you're capable of. At the time, it can feel very painful. But again, it's one of those things where they look back and, it, and it's odd you said that because today, so with, with our CTO, I've really like pushed him, but he pushes himself. And um, he actually said, you, the word you used just then, he actually wrote to me earlier saying, actually, this is the most elegant work I think I've ever produced in my life. And I, I think that's it. I think when people look back through all the pain, they're thinking, oh, I was lucky to work for Randy. Because actually Randy was able to get the best out of me. And not just that, put me around other people who were able, you know, who and we were all able to get the best out of each other. You know, that that really is the key. It, it, it's it's the environment and the people. Lawrence, I I, I have a, a a pretty short slide deck that I use to introduce myself to to new teams or new organizations. Um, you know, I, I need this obviously more in, in a big company like Microsoft or Salesforce. Here at Marquette, it's a little easier. Uh, but it, it it has one slide that, that um, I, I think I titled it something like, so what is your job anyway, Randy? And, and it's a very simple slide. It, it's like one little donut chart. And I don't remember the exact proportion, but but there's three segments. And, and the largest, let's call it like 75%, is what I call environment. And that's basically all of the work that we do each and every day to create a situation where good work can happen. And it's that push that you're talking about. It's removing friction. It's you know it, it ensuring that that you know people have basically the clarity and understanding and alignment and you know everything necessary such that great work can happen. And information is flowing up and down easily. All of those type of things. So that far and away is the bulk of my job. Then I have a 20% block, which is hiring and firing. And I intentionally have the word firing on there, not that I spend 20% of my time firing, but it, that's sort of the, the, the starting point of the conversation with a new organization about us being a performance-oriented culture, about us you know, looking at an environment where we're all going to work really hard. And by hard, I don't mean the way I worked in the early 90s, you know, 100-hour week. That's not what I'm looking for. Sure. I'm looking for folks who are really focused and really efficient and put in really good work and get a lot of return from their calories, from their energy. And then the last piece, the, the, the 5% that's remaining on that, that donut chart uh, is making decisions. And the reality is I, I probably shouldn't even be making decisions 5% of the time, but, but it's sort of a, a reasonable starting point. And you know, I use that as, as an entree to the organization to talk about, you know, what, while I'm more than happy to make decisions and, and, and the ones that, that 
should be made by, by me, I'm more than happy to do, but I don't want to be the choke point on the organization. And the vast majority of the people who work for me, under, well, everyone who works for me, understands what they're doing and the details of that area far better than I ever could. You know, the point of scale and breadth is, is, is that we sort of, you know, I, I likely have a, a broader context. Someone working on a particular area understands the depth much, 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 much better. So we talk and, and we debate and, and we discuss it so that I can share context that helps you understand, you know, what of many paths you might want to take to better solve the problem. But at the end of the day, you're the one who understands the reality. You're the one who understands the details. You know, I, when, when there really is, a, uh, when there's a risk trade-off or, or, or something that that's, you know, really feels inappropriate to make in, in a particular area of the team, happy to weigh in and, and, and take that responsibility. But at the end of the day, I would much rather foster an environment where everyone understands what we're trying to do collectively, understands what they're trying to do individually, and then is fully set up to drive as hard as they possibly can. I mean, with that, I mean, you, you mentioned that there is like a choke point, but really the choke point, I guess, as as the CTO, the choke point is on you in terms of the fact that, you know, Marketo has grown exponentially. Um, I'm sure even even in the, the time you've been there, you've seen huge changes, partnerships, huge opportunities. And again, that is all, but th th that's all driven, right, by the advancements in technology and, you know, what your guys and what your team are doing. I mean, in terms of that, what does the future look like for Marquesa? And so in terms of from a business perspective and in terms of the tech that you want to see being developed? I think what I'd highlight is scale, right? It, it, it's bringing the, the flexibility, bringing the benefits of modern card issuing and processing, you know, bringing this to, to more and more companies that want to innovate and, and, and want to tie <laughs> whatever their area of focus and innovation is to the rest of the world. You know, Marquette is a really unique platform, a really unique tool to allow innovation in a space that otherwise is really, really hard. You know, you can't have your cell phone spit out cash that you then take and, and do something, right? You, you need some sort of translation layer, and whether it's virtual cards that you tokenize and put on a phone, you know, that's something that Marquette does for a lot of our customers whether it's kind of that, that uh, hook in, in the authorization, the card authorization flow, so that you can do fiat or, uh, excuse me, crypto to fiat conversion real time. You know, the, these sort of little touch points, these little simple spots where instead of taking on the whole onerous space of interacting with the rest of the world, interacting with the payments ecosystem, we give you little APIs, simple spots to hook in and, and do the one unique, really special thing you wanted to do. So continuing to bring that, continue to innovate in that space. You know, our, our company is about building one Marquetta, you know, being very inclusive, very supportive. It's about leading through innovation. It's about connecting to our customer. You know, we're doing this stuff because it matters to a company somewhere, it matters to a customer, and it matters to a cardholder, right? We wanna do it because it literally makes the experience someone out there in the world is better day in and day out. You know, we, we are a, we're a product company, right? And, and that's driven through innovation, that, that's driven through improving the world in our slice of that. So for me in, in you know, as a CTO in technology in particular, 
that means a lot of focus on scale, right? That means making our products more scalable. It means supporting larger and larger customers and transaction volumes. It means making it easier to do that so that my team isn't crushed under the pain of kind of managing that system as it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, you know, I, I, as, a, as a company grows or, or, or as, as, as use of a platform grows, it's not really about the company, but as use of a platform grows, you, know, you have to find ways to make it easier and easier and easier to operate that platform or your product and engineering team sort of grinds to a halt and, and sure. can't get the space and, and the freedom and the time to innovate. And so it's a really, really important, obviously, for, to provide a, a high quality product for the trust of our customers and the trust of, of their customers, uh, and then to do it in a way that's easier and easier for us so we maintain that excitement, we maintain that innovation, regardless of the scope and scale as we continue to, to go down this journey. Well, it's, it's impressive what you guys are doing, to say the least. I mean, I, and in, ter in terms of being impressed and like developers trying to impress you that want to work at Marketa, um, I think I've mentioned this before, like, you know, a huge part of our community, in fact, probably our biggest market, understandably, for web three blockchain developers, it is actually the United States. Um, slowly, like just behind us, obviously the Europe. Um, though we're seeing huge, huge growth actually in Brazil, I should say. Um, but um, what are your expectations, like um, in terms of in terms of developers? In fact, let me put it another way: What would be your advice for developers? trying to break into a company like Marketa, they want to stand out, they want to impress you. Um, is it about the languages they should be learning? Is it about their attitude? Is it both? Is it, you know, how much of it is science for you? How much of it, of it is art? It's a really good question. So look, um, software development in 2022 is a team sport. You know, okay, way back early in my career, you know, there, there was an awful lot of, you know, <laughs> individual wizards in a closet building something. And in 2022, though, the, the scope and scale and complexity of what we do means this is a team sport. You work across not only other engineers, but you've got colleagues in product, you've got colleagues in go-to-market, you're talking to your customers. It's inherently, <coughs> pardon me, it's inherently a much more team-oriented effort than, than it once was. So first and foremost, kind of comes back to that point of be a good person, be someone who supports each other, who is curious about others' perspectives, who isn't trying to win every conversation, but is trying to find the best answer. You know, I love debate, but I want to debate with you, Lawrence, in order that our different perspectives, the diversity of our experiences, the diversity of our views leads to a better outcome. I don't want to fight with you about you. It's not about me winning you or, or, or me putting you down. I want to argue with you about the thing on the table such that we make a better diamond. Sure. So I'd say that's first and foremost. And then get really good at your skill, right? The, the technical skill of writing software. I don't care what language you've done it in. I, I don't care what company you worked at, but go really deep, like really understand how it works, why it works that way. You know, when, when you know, it, bugs and, and mistakes and failures are a gift. 
but don't just go fix them. Like really, really learn from them. You know, I, I, I remember a, uh, I remember a night, this was probably Oh two maybe. Uh, and some friends of mine were, were launching a new website and they've been working on this thing for, for, you know, a year, 18 months, whatever it was. Uh, and the night they were going live, they, they'd been in beta for a little bit, but the night they were going live, um, I, I went by around midnight or whatever, and I brought them all Starbucks coffees because I'm like, I, I, I know what nights like that are, are, are like, it's, it's brutal. Oh, so America. Uh, that's so Seattle as well, by the way. That's true. That's very that's true. So yes. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> Called me out. You got me. Yeah. Uh, and and they, they were struggling, though, because they, they, they the moment they would turn this thing on, you know, they, they'd get a few queries in, they, they'd serve a few web pages, and then latency would go just through the roof. It would take forever to get a page back, and, and mostly they would just all error out. And yeah, I, I, I was sitting there for a little bit, and I was listening to folks talk, and, and, and then uh, I, I, I asked a question, and I realized the, the, the problem they had. Basically, they, they, they had built this uh, using kind of what, what then was all the, the new fancy technology, and kind of were doing RPC calls back into the website in order to render little different subcomponents. But those RPC calls were going back in the same way a user's browser request, request would come in. So basically what was happening is massive request amplification. So one user would make a request, it would spawn, you know, a hundred other requests that sat in that same queue. Anyway, long story short, it, it, it just didn't work, right? This, this architecture didn't work. Um, the good news was, you know, in, in this particular uh, technology stack they were using, they could basically just sort of change how the build system worked. And now all those RPC calls were direct calls in memory right to that bit of code. And so we, we, they, they rebuilt it, you know, an hour or two later, redeployed it, and thing worked perfectly. But, you know, I, I, I've talked to some folks about that experience since. And, and you know, what, what's interesting is some people are just like, oh, yeah, we shouldn't have done that. Others really went in and deeply understood how that broke down and were able to extract lessons and, and deeply learn from that misstep in a way that others couldn't. And I'd say that the people who sort of hang on to their intellectual curiosity and really use that to drive depth, to really deeply understand what they're doing and what the software is doing, those are the folks that can have the biggest impact by far. And I have to ask just last question, very conscious. I, I am conscious of, of your time. Um, I have to ask this for, for our community because about 15 to 20% of the round community, it's developers who are either have just recently founded their own company or they're about to start their own or they're planning on building their own company um, within 18 months from now. What, when should they take their product and actually start selling it? And the reason I'm asking this is that, so the, one of the mistakes we made, we got our product really early and and, and we, we just went out there, we tried to, we tried to start selling it like really early on. And lo and behold, very lucky, we, we got clients. We needed to get clients. We, we were in that position. But for most companies, is it not detrimental for them to just build, a, build their first product? Like you say, it's almost like in the beta, uh, beta phase. It might not be the best product ever. Should they 
be taking it to market? Should they be trying to generate sales? Is that the philosophy or is it something where you actually, you hold off, you make sure you've got a superior product and then you go to market, which by the way is another thing. Because, you know, if you do that, first of all, from a reputation, re reputational standpoint, I, th I think it's much more professional. Um, in addition to that, so I'm, I'm kind of jumping here. One of the mistakes that we made, we took our product to market and we tried selling it for a thousand bucks. No one would buy it. We then, we grew the community a bit bigger and then we took exactly the same product and we tried selling it for 50,000 bucks. And then all of a sudden we had a waiting list of clients. It's the same product with more people admittedly. So for, 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 for young CTOs, for founders of companies, when should they really be like jumping in and saying, right now, let's go and sell our product? Wow. I mean, that, that, is, that is literally the billion dollar unicorn question. Okay. And, and, and I think the approach is very, very different in B2C than it is in B2B. Okay. You know, if, if, if you are selling B2C, you know, it, it is inherently, it's inherently a game where it's harder to get going early. It's something where, where you, know, you, you don't need to be done by any stretch, but I, I, I think it's a lot harder to, to really sort of drip out very early little bits and, and pieces and, and get uptick and get useful feedback. Um, on the B2B side, I also think it varies a lot in terms of what the product actually is. Right. What, what is the level of trust the customer needs to have in that product? You know, the, the, the journey is going to be a little bit different for every product segment, every buyer in, in an enterprise or, or consumer. So I think the right answer has a lot of nuance. I do want to caveat this. That it's, you know, this is in terms of, of when to start selling. Don't conflate that with when to, to go talk to your customers. Go talk to them before you even pick up the keyboard yeah. and keep talking to them every single day. 100%. Spend yeah. as much time talking to customer or potential customers, prospects, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, as you can way before you have anything you might And they'll start tell you doing. what you're doing wrong. And listening to that is hard, both because you don't want to be challenged in, in the beauty of your idea and also the fact that folks don't always recognize what a better way of doing something is. So there's very much a balancing act here of, of how you listen to a customer or a prospect telling you that it's really really tricky um you know I, i'll 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 share one one bit of how i think about building products not necessarily new companies but building products inside of existing companies or or, or even features for that matter Lawrence. i am a huge proponent of incrementalism and even in, for architectural evolution you know, I don't want the plan that says, oh, yeah, we want to replace this data store with this one over here. I'll be back in two years. No, I want you to figure out the way that two weeks from now, two months from now, you've got something up and working in production. Doesn't mean the whole thing has moved over. Doesn't mean you're done. But I really want you to find the way to do that. And it's hard. And people generally don't want to do it. And they tell me how, well, that means I'm not going to be done in two years. I'm going to be done in five years. And all that's kind of true, but it's missing two really key things. You know, when I started this game with packaged software, with floppy disks, uh, and, and sort of a recall was really, really expensive. You know, if you built a piece of software, you put it in, in, in the distribution channel, 
bunch of enterprises picked it up, and then you're like, oops, there's a really bad bug. Like, that was really hard to recover from. Oh. And deploying a new version was really hard. It meant burning new floppies, you know, getting them on trucks to go to Egghead software, like all this crazy stuff. As a SaaS company, you know, a new version, you know, I, I, I can make that happen in 30 seconds. And so value, the, the production of value is sort of the area under the curve for all those little tiny minute improvements, right? So if I make the product a tiny, tiny bit better, but it's being used by, you know, let's say randomly a thousand customers, I get some value from that, right? So each of those little tiny upticks adds value to my customers, it adds value to my business. And so when I think about kind of our tech revolution, building new features as part of an existing company, even though it's frustrating, even though it's hard, doing it incrementally, you actually produce more value, even if it takes you five years instead of two to put in a check mark and say you're done. So for a new company, you know, one of the things that's really, really important, obviously, is product market fit. So as soon as you can start to gauge that, don't wait any longer. But yeah. to your point, you know, if if people won't even be able to recognize it yet, you know, if if you have one wall of the gymnasium, maybe you'll wait a little bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. Randy, I've got to say, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. It's uh, very much product market fit, and it's not about just uh, trying to charge fifty x more than what you were doing previously. Um, Randy Kern, um, CTO at Marketa. Fantastic to have you with us today. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Lawrence. It's been a pleasure.